And frankly, I think that one of the things that we have to start doing is stop having the nice conversation and start shaming people as mm. to what, you know, demonstrate what you have done to address this problem. Welcome to The Race to Social Justice, a podcast that explores the myriad racial and social challenges facing the modern world with your hosts, Kiva White and John Kepner. Thank you for being part of the courageous conversation, because when it comes to combating social injustices in America, it is not about being confrontational. It is about being conversational. Good evening, John. How are you? Hi, Kiva. Good evening. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to another uh, podcast series on uh, race to social justice. I'm Kiva White, and as you can see, I'm the black guy. I've been this way for a very long time. I'm not going to change. John? And I'm John Kepner. I'm the white guy. And Kiva and I share the love of the letter K. K for Kiva and K for Kepner. And K, most importantly, for knowledge, uh, what Kiva calls the K factor. Yes, knowledge is very important. And I think we have uh, uh, done some really good work with this podcast and dispensing knowledge. You know, the goal of this podcast is really to promote social justice through honest and, you know, even sometimes difficult dialogues. You know, John and I, we've been friends for several years now. We have found our conversations with each other to have deepened over the years uh, with, and, and getting different perspectives and understanding of racism and our personal responsibilities in that regard. And that has led us to uh, this platform to, that we have developed called the Race to Social Justice, where we invite guests uh, to share their honest experiences uh, and learnings around this issue. Uh, and we hope these conversations will help our listeners and our viewers as well, and even our guests on our journey towards what I call transformation. And so, John, who do, who do we have uh, for this podcast uh, episode tonight? Well, uh, tonight we have uh, the doctor and the judge. Um, let me first introduce uh, Anna McKee. Anna and I were colleagues together uh, many years ago, 25 years, more than 25 <laughs> years ago at the University of Pennsylvania Health System. Uh, uh, Anna was on our executive team and uh, really highly focused in, in managed care, uh, became the vice Vice, uh, Vice President for Medical Affairs, uh, Medical Director, if you will, at, at Penn Presbyterian, one of our major hospitals. And uh, <laughs> she, she's now in a national position and has been for several years with the Joint Commission, uh, which accredits hospitals across the country based in Chicago. And she is also the Chief Diversity Officer there. And through Anna, I was fortunate at that time to meet um, her husband, uh, the Honorable Theodore, Theodore Ted McKee, um, who has had an illustrious career, legal career. Um, he uh, will, he'll talk a little bit about his, his training, his undergraduate training, but um, after law school, um, settled in Philadelphia, worked for a major law firm in Philadelphia, was an assistant U.S. attorney, had several roles with the city of Philadelphia, uh, and became a common pleas judge until uh, Bill Clinton became president and appointed him to the Third Circuit Court of Appeal, Appeals, and he became the chief judge. Uh, now, if you're a lawyer with a lawyer background like me, this is a big deal to be the chief <laughs> judge of the Third Circuit, so I'm going to embarrass you a little bit, uh, Ted, but um, uh, he's had an illustrious career. He's now in a retired status, I guess, right? Um, Not yet. I 
Not quite. The president, I was going to take senior status, semi-retired. Senior status, okay. Effective okay. only upon confirmation by okay. successor. Okay. It hasn't happened yet, so I'm still an active judge. Okay. Well, anyway, um, you can see, right? He's 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 a, a pretty prominent guy, and and on several boards in in the city, and uh, so uh, I'm going to kick this off by um, uh, asking uh, you, Ted, to talk about your dad, and I'm going to start with his athletic career, right? There's some uh, first there with your dad, and pick up there on your early youth, and and then on, I'm going to ask you to do the same thing. And, and I'm, I'd like us to lead to eventually to talk about um, the your the, the, the subject of racism in the context of your professional careers, but Kevin and I really uh, like to hear the early stories that, that led to your career. So if you could kick it off, Ted, sure. and then we'll turn it over to Tom. Yeah, my dad grew up in, I was born in Tennessee, but I grew up in Bloomington, Indiana. And uh, I remember going out to uh, um, visit my aunts and uncles who were in Bloomington as I was growing up through um, junior high school and then high school. Dad was an incredible athlete. He played basketball on the uh, high school team, the Bloomington High School. He was the first black person to play high school basketball in the state of Indiana. He encountered such resistance. First of all, he had to take a petition around town and have that signed by, I'm not sure how many thousand he told me, I think it was 2,000 um, white residents to allow him to play on the team. And that number may be wrong. It seems high now, but it was a substantial number of signatures he had to get on the petition. He was then allowed to um, play, but his senior year, his mom received so many threats that um, she finally decided that he should leave Bloomington and go to Buffalo where his older brother uh, was working. And so dad left Bloomington, I think when he was 17, went to Buffalo, lived with my uncle Buck and uh, graduated from high, from, uh, high school in Buffalo, not, uh, not in Bloomington after playing his final year of basketball in Buffalo. And then from there, he got a job as a waiter on the New York Central Railroad. And what I'm very proud of, he ended up being the uh, waiter in charge, which is basically the highest position a black person could rise to in his day. You have, you, you're a teacher, an undertaker, barber, a waiter in charge if you went in the post office. And basically it meant he was running a restaurant. The, the, the dining cars back then were so different from what we have now, they were real dining experience. It was a restaurant on wheels, a very fine restaurant, a very elegant restaurant on wheels. And Dad was in charge of that restaurant. He told me many stories about working, waiting on celebrities. It was before everybody was flying. He waited on Jack Benny numerous times, uh, Louis Armstrong, whom he absolutely loved and adored, and Jackie Gleason, whom he also loved and adored. <laughs> and Jackie Gleason was maybe the world's biggest tipper. That you, back then, this was really, in the huh? 40s, I guess. You'd bring him a cup of coffee, he'd give you a $10 tip. On the wow. other hand, he told me that the stories and the comedy about Jack Benny being so cheap said that is not fiction. The man, nobody wanted to wait on him. He was incredibly tight, really cheap. And he said, Louis Armstrong, when the run was done, where they got to where they're going, be it Chicago or it wouldn't be Buffalo, it'd be Chicago, St. Louis, where the band was playing, Louis Armstrong loved Chitlins and he would insist that the entire dining car crew join him and his band. Uh, at his expense at a local restaurant, and he would buy them. Really interesting. So, very, yeah. very down to earth guy, despite his incredible international fame. Mm. Interesting. So, so Anna, how about how about your parents? And 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 
mentioned the connection between your two moms. Mm. Sure. So my, my journey was a little bit different, but we ended up in the same place. My parents are from Puerto Rico and they migrated to the Bronx, New York. Um, I came in my mom's belly. <laughs> and so I was born and, and raised pretty much in the South Bronx and spending my summers in Puerto Rico. What was unique about my family was my father in particular was very much a progressive advocate. And he knew that the three daughters that he had were of color and that that's the end of what the story is. They were gonna be treated as people of color. And being Puerto Rican didn't give us a pass, didn't make it easier that we had to have the tools and the knowledge to navigate in a, in a world that was filled with discrimination. So as kids, and this was a, you know, an issue between both my parents was my mom felt that we were being exposed to risk. We were taught to picket, go on picket lines in the Bronx. Uh, White Tower was um, not hiring people of color. A&P was not hiring people of color. Uh, a and P, remember that. I one. remember A and P. That tells you your age, I guess. Yes. Oh, I remember A and P. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, so we grew up going on pickets, and you know, in 1958, we were there for the march on Washington, and I was raised with a sense of awareness of you are a person of color, and you have to know certain things, and so. Shortly after 1958, we made a trip through the South. My father had a 1958 Buick that he had just purchased. It was a big thing. And we drove South through the segregated South. We slept in the car because there were sometimes no places to stay. We went to places that my parents, by the way, didn't know about the green books. So we oh, were sort of at a disadvantage. We were at a disadvantage. But we drove all the way down to Florida and then picked up a ferry and went to Cuba. And um, from Cuba, we went to the Dominican Republic where we were met with the worst poverty I had ever seen at the time. And a welcoming sign at the port that said, have faith in Trujillo and enter. And uh, <laughs> that didn't give you any faith. But anyway, we, we were raised perhaps not in a traditional way as Puerto Rican girls. and. Education was the way out. There was no options for us. We were told and we believed that it was the book that was gonna make the big difference. And of course it did. Wow. So you're, you're, mm. I remember talking to you a while ago about your mom and growing up with your mom in the South Bronx. And you said that she had sort of her own social service organization. <laughs> she was your mother. Uh, yeah. tell, us a, tell us a little bit about that and, and how uh, your experience that you just talked about and growing up in the South Bronx and that particular aspect of it uh, shaped, shaped your future life, your future professional life. So as Ted said, my mom was a remarkable woman. She lived till she was 99 years old. She was an artist. She was a, trained as a teacher, but in her professional life, she worked as a real estate agent and a property owner, a land, landlord a developer, really. and developer. 
And one of the buildings that she bought was in an extremely dangerous, high-risk neighborhood. If, if you remember, the history of the South Bronx was that it was burning up. They were, the value of real estate didn't matter. So the buildings were being burned mm -hmm. almost routinely. So I grew up with skeletons of buildings and we had junkies, we had gangs, we had people mm -hmm. whose plight was going in the wrong direction. So she bought this 38 family building and mm -hmm. she started classes for literacy. She would, during the holidays, go up on the fifth floor uh, during the cold months, uh, there was a patio for the summer months, and she would have parties for the children. And she built a sense of community where people were living frightened behind closed doors, and people began to really look out for one another. And, um, you know, her door was always open. I think she must have served 50 cups of coffee every day because everybody came in telling her you know, her woes and getting her advice. That legacy of hers uh, has been transferred to us. We still have that property. You know, we oh. still take care yes. of our, and invest in a building. It's, it's, a not for pro, it's not a not-for-profit, but it is a mm. not-for-profit. <laughs> very little profit. But, you know, we feel very strongly that that's something that we have to continue. Well, so, so how did the two of you me. Well, I'm, I'm going to start because I think the story that I want to tell is how I was being deprived of the support that I needed to get into college. And then you can tell the story mm. of the irony. Um, I was going to school in uh, a high school in the Bronx, Columbus High School. And I knew, you know, my parents really did not know the higher education system in the state. So they couldn't really guide us. They only said, you got to go figure it out. You got to go. So I made it my business to once a week, go to the guidance counselor's office in my high school and say, hey, I need guidance. Can we sit down and talk? And she consistently would dismiss me and say, I have nothing for you today. Mm. Dismiss me. And I would, I would make these trips during my lunch hour, you know, because that was that, that important to me. And one day I entered her office and I saw a group of white students in a chair, in a circle of chairs, maybe eight white students with her and a white man in a suit. And the way she reacted when I opened that door was pretty alarming. You can't come in, you can't come in. She shooed me out, she was really distressed. And I'm like, what, what's this about? Mm. And the gentleman said to her, no, wait, let her come in. Don't you remember I told you I came here to recruit minority students? <laughs> she had white students in that room. Mm. So he connected with me and I'm gonna turn it over to Ted because his name was Ed Walsh and Ted will tell you the irony and kind of how nothing is a coincidence in life. Yeah, when I went, I grew up in a very small, um, it was in a suburb. It was more of a rural community outside of Rochester, you know, between Rochester and Buffalo. There were like 3,500, 4,000 people in our town. My high school graduating class had 80 kids. It was the biggest class we ever had graduating. Counting me, there were two black kids in my, in my high school graduating class. But um, my basketball coach there was Ed Walsh. 
and my uh, English teacher there, because this was a small school, people did everything. He was also my English teacher for a couple of years. When I graduated from high school and went to, um, and Ed left before I graduated. When I went to Cortland, Ed was working in the admissions office in Cortland. And, and I had no support from my guidance counselor either. She kept telling me that I should go to a two-year school and not apply to a four-year school. Ironically, when I worked in admissions after graduating from Cortland, I'll get to that in a second, I began to realize how you can promote an applicant, a high school applicant. And I realized how incredibly packageable and competitive I was. I was president of the student body. I played varsity soccer, varsity basketball. I wasn't a straight A student, but I was a very, very solid B student. Had incredible references from teachers. The mayor of Rochester would have given me a reference because I worked for the mayor for um, a summer. Um, a very, very highly regarded in the town. I was incredibly um, competitive and packageable. Had she wanted to get me into a four-year school, help me get to one, as opposed to this two-year program in ornamental horticulture, which is what she would stand me toward. When I went in to see her and she told me about this two-year program, she thought I should consider an ornamental horticulture. Went home I told my dad, who fortunately was home, because working on the road, he wasn't home that much. He was gone. And um, we didn't have a I'm not sure if we had a car then or not. I remember he rode his bike up to the high school, so we probably didn't have a car yet. Uh, and this is February in outside of Rochester, New York. I don't remember the weather, but I know it had to be cold. It was probably <laughs> snow on the ground because from October to literally June, there's almost always snow on the ground up there. Dad rode his bicycle up to the high school, came back, and he said, Mrs. Putnam, we'll see you first thing in the morning. Her name, she's deceased now. I walk into her office in the morning. She's got all the stuff laid out from Harvard and Cornell and Columbia, saying, Ted, let's talk about what you're going to do. And I realized in retrospect, that's probably a setup. She knew I couldn't get into those schools. And if I did get in, I could have afforded them. I really needed to go to a branch of the State University of New York that I could afford, uh, number one, that I was incredibly competitive for in terms of admissions. Plus, I wanted to play football. I didn't play in high school because my high school didn't have a football team. And mm -hmm. one of my objectives in going to college was to play football. And oh. I knew I'm going to play football at Cornell or, or Yale, these schools. I could have played at a state school, although I ended up going to Cortland. I didn't know at the time how incredibly good and competitive Cortland's teams were. I probably would have been intimidated and not gone there. So now I ended up going to, um, applying to Cortland really on my own, going there. I'm convinced that the reason I got in there as easily as I did, because there were students in my school that um, had better averages than me in high school who did not get into Cortland. It was a very highly sought after um, state school in, in my high school because Ed was there in the admissions office and he probably had a say in that, although he never confirmed that. I see. When I graduated from Cortland, I got a job working at SUNY Binghamton in charge of minority recruitment. That was my title. I was in charge of recruitment for the special admissions program that, that Anna spoke about. The financial advisor for the, uh, uh, the financial advisor, one of the recruiters actually, was not a financial advisor. He worked in the admissions office in an office right next to my office in admissions was Ed Walsh. So it was it was just an incredible um the man is I think he was stalking me, I was stalking him. Uh, but he was the one who had met Anna in high school to recruit her to Binghamton. And he may have been, I don't think he had a hand in my getting a job at Binghamton. That was independent. That was through the then director of the program who was one of the most remarkable people I've ever met in my life, John Benson. John was the one who really recruited me. And, um, it's a long story in and of itself. I was very active on uh, in campus politics in Cortland. <clears throat> I came to the attention of the person, the highest ranking black administrator in the SUNY system at the time, Dr. Smoot. And um, 
he took an interest in me, circulated my resume to uh, the SUNY schools, and John immediately responded uh, and came up to see me, and we had what was quote, quite an interview. It was just an incredibly lovely evening. He insisted we go down and have a beer. Um, and I, I, did, I didn't hang out in college. It was the first time I think I ever went to this little tavern where all the guys hung out, all the football team went in there. <clears throat> um, but anyhow, I went in there. That's where I had my so-called interview with, with John. And was there three years. That's how I got to know Anna. It was just a remarkable three years, incredible growth for me, a great deal of satisfaction. John, as I said, is one of my dearest friends in life. I have tremendous regard and respect for him. One of the most remarkable people I've ever met in life. Wow. wow. So, so you became respectively doctor and lawyer, judge. So how did that happen? I mean, you, you there was some part of your stories where you were blocked or, or you were discouraged from from even going to college so and i can see uh based on your what you said about your family and and the way you were raised to think about life but um why that might motivate you to become doctor and judge lawyer but what 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 was the were there barriers to getting to law school and to medical school anna do you want to go first Sure, I really wanted to go to medical school and really wanted to do pre-med, but I had such poor preparation in high school and in junior high school for the sciences that I sat in my first college bio class and I was basically lost. I, I couldn't keep up. Um, when I was in junior high school, my science project was to prepare arroz con pollo, which is rice and you know traditional rice and chicken dish. Yeah. That's that's where my what my teacher offered me, right? Wow. So you know I was sitting in a room in a hall with you know kids who had been doing incredible things, dissecting frogs, learning anatomy, and I I'd never seen a frog or you know never even anyway. Long story short. I graduated with a degree in psychology, my undergraduate degree. And then Ted went to law school and I followed Ted to Syracuse, New York, where he was going to law school. I worked in a psychiatric rehab facility for two years. And one day a coworker, and I was really the lowest entry level position. And it took me months to get that job, it wasn't easy. Mm -hmm. Um, and the economy was bad. It was a rough time financially. But a woman said to me, well, I've, had, I've been doing this for 16 years and it was like a bucket of water. The hell I'm gonna do this for 16 years. I mean, I was taking care of people with serious mental illness um, who would occasionally become violent. And you know, it was just a scary environment for me. So I looked around and I found the post-baccalaureate pre-medical program at Connecticut College. And Ted and I separated for a year while I went there to oh. you know, pick up all the courses that I didn't take in undergraduate. And um, then Ted was graduating from law school. And then the big challenge is, are we going to land up in the same place, uh, in the same town? same state. <laughs> mm -hmm. And we did. We found Philadelphia to have the most hits for him and for me. And we came to Philadelphia. So it, it was a longer way, but probably a better way for me in terms of having, knowing that I was 
having the experience of working at a job where people went nowhere taught me that kid, you better get a skill that is marketable no matter where. And, and that's gotta be the goal. And so I went back to my original passion, which was medicine. And that's how I did it. Ted, did you, when did you know you wanted to be a lawyer? <clears throat> when I ran out of alternatives, <clears throat> working at City Bings in admission, I enjoyed the job, it was a wonderful job, especially right out of college like that. The money was incredible, but I knew I didn't want to do that all my life was during the Vietnam, the Cambodian invasion. And I began to have less and less um, patience, I guess, for some of the, the posturing and the campus politics. When I was in college, I, I went through an awful lot of internal debate and turmoil about what I could do to help out. I wanted to go down to join the Freedom Rides. My dad said, absolutely not. You're not doing that. And to this day, I was incredibly frustrated and angry at the time, but this day I'm so glad he wouldn't let me do that because having those, if I would have been in one of those um, mounds of dirt uh, where so many of the people who went down there to work just disappeared. Um, but I, I, I had that kind of serious thought. I wrestled with induction in Vietnam and I was convinced that if I was a draft that I wasn't going to serve, I was either going to go to prison or go to Canada. In fact, I researched all I could about Lewisburg prison because that's where the people from my area of the country, that's where they were sent to do the time. I did some research on that. Applied for conscientious objector status. I'd worked for the mayor of Rochester. He became mayor at the time as a city councilman. He wrote a very nice letter for me. My grandmother was a Jehovah's Witness. So I had something going for me, but nevertheless, I, uh, I didn't get that. I did fortunately get classified one Y because of a um, football injury. In retrospect, it was probably a concussion that I suffered covering a call for a punt as a so that yeah. wanting to play football really paid off. It really did, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Sakiba, so you can't relate to this. You're too young. Uh, but but Ted and I are a year apart. You know, I was 68 graduate, and right. and many decisions were made oh. and courses were taken by our group in relation yeah. to the war. Yeah, it was, it was brutal. Wow. It was a, it was horrible horrible time. a huge distraction. Horrible time. That huge contributed to me not being able yeah. to pursue the pre-medical. Uh, program you know it was but it was a time when people were paying attention you yeah. know our generation yeah. was really reading and learning and listening oh, and involved and, asking questions about citizenship yeah. and democracy mm -hmm. i mean we'd have teach-ins where classes would be suspended for two days you couldn't get into the room where the teach-in was unless you got there earlier people were not staying in the dorm sleeping they were actively going into the teach-ins teach-ins about Vietnam, about the history of racism in the country, that now there's an attempt to legislate and, and mandate stupidity, which boggles my mind, because the right. school boards are actively engaged in, in not only not teaching it, but putting up barriers to that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. yeah. But yeah, after going through those kinds of turmoil, I was listening to the students, many of whom I had recruited, the Black and Puerto Rican students at campus, talking about revolution, this and that, and I think myself, but these guys are so full of shit, they really haven't given any serious thought what it means to put your body on the line, the sitting yeah. up in the student union in the dining hall, talking all this revolutionary stuff, quoting Marx and Engels and trying to figure out Hegel. So I don't think anybody can figure out Hegel, including Hegel. And I just, I knew I didn't want to do that. And so the only thing I could think of as an alternative was law school. Uh, I, I, the years before that, I think law, law students were getting deferments. At that time, they weren't, because when I went to Binghamton, right. one of the other draws of going there was to get an educational deferment. They stopped the educational affirmance for 
college administrators while I was there, so that didn't help me. Um, that's when I got called for the physical and everything after they kicked that deferment away. So I thought, you know, law school is about the only option that makes sense. I could do something valuable with a law degree. It's a way of working towards trying to better society and protect the interests of uh, my community. So it made all kinds of sense. And so I applied, I was fortunate to get into Syracuse, Syracuse, uh, Buffalo, is one of the schools that I applied, I think Fordham, I may have been wasted at Fordham. But Syracuse gave me a full ride, full tuition for all three years, so it was a, it was a no-brainer. Yeah. Um, so I, I went there and did incredibly well. So when I graduated, I had a lot of options. I could just kind of follow Anna when she got an interview at a, um, a med school. I'd go to Martindale Hubble, this legal encyclopedia for law firms, forgot who in the city paid the most, and then apply to that firm because you know, I had to help her. <laughs> one block. Right. Yeah. Did your research. Yeah. You right. did your research. That's good. Then I, yeah, I, I, I like I, that in mind, but I knew I had to make money to help out with that school. I, I yeah. like the honesty here. It was there was <laughs> principle involved, but also yeah, yeah. got to make a living. Right? Oh, yeah, yeah. We were right. poor. We yeah, were really, right. really right. poor. Wow. You know, well, I we <laughs> the irony. The irony is that that um, what years were you at Wolf Block? I was there seventy five, seventy seven. Right, wow. and I was I was at Saul Ewing at the uh, same time in the same building. That's and right. We probably rode the, the elevator together. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Each other. <laughs> yeah. That's that? right. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Really something. Yeah. Well, it's uh, clear. It's clear that you both you know, persevered and overcome, overcame a lot of uh, adversity in the educational arena. And, you know, some of those, some of those uh, stories that you shared, I mean, I, I know they're not uncommon to uh, most, you know, black and brown very and African-American. They're very common, even, I mean, you're, you think about the generational, you know, you're, you're, in your generation, we're still, you experienced it. I experienced it in my generation. I have kids that are in school. There's a little bit still, of that stuff, you know, discriminatory practices, uh, even even in 2021. And so, uh, you know, I really uh, appreciate you sharing your story because you know, storytelling is is a big piece, uh, uh, you know, a big component of getting to a better place in this thing called social justice, right? And and that everybody, in my, from what I've been, you know, uh, uh, exposed to in, in my my personal studies that is generational and each era, even though the era changes, the systemic challenges and the systemic racism and discriminatory practices, they remain constant, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so thank you so much for sharing, you know, your experiences and how you were able to persevere, uh, you know, to become a judge, become a doctor. And I wanted to ask you all, even, you know, in those positions, your professional positions that you, you know, hold down now, you share, can you share a, a discriminatory practice or something discriminatory in nature that you may have faced, even as a judge and even as a doctor, because this stuff doesn't go away because, yeah. you know, we, we elevate ourselves in society. So I thought it would be important to ask you what, like, what are some things that you have experienced, uh, Ted, as, as a judge? As a, you know, a yeah, we know you can't tell. I remember as a common peace court judge talking to a, a very established black common peace court judge. He was telling to me, because the, the politics, John knows the politics of Philadelphia are yeah. incredible. And once you get on the, the state bench there, the politics don't, 
the, the candidate transforms to a different arena because you can't be political. But within the bench, there's all kinds of politics. And I was talking to him yeah. about something that had happened to me. I can't remember what it was. Uh, but he said to me, you know, Ted, there are so many slights in life. There are age slights. There are political slights. There are racial slights. With the male, it's not going to be a gender slight. But there are just a lot of ways where people might manifest some kind of bigotry toward you. You can't ever really be sure whether it's a racial slight, an age slight. You just, you just don't know. Uh, a seniority slight. I've had things happen to me on the Court of Appeals. One thing that sticks in my, out in my mind, we circulate all of our presidential opinions internally before they're filed. Most, most circuits don't do that. Very few do do that. <clears throat> but it means that anybody who writes an opinion, once it clears the panel, once the other two judges on the panel sign off of it, <clears throat> on it make any suggestions and agree with the conclusion of the holding, it then goes to everybody on the court and they have eight to 10 days to decide whether or not they want to vote for what's called rehearing on bank, meaning they think you got it wrong, the panel got it wrong. And they can also send in suggestions for editing and styles and that kind of thing. Remember shortly after I got there, I sent a note around <clears throat> and, um, no, I'm sorry, one of my colleagues, a very senior colleague, very senior to me, sent an opinion around I looked at it and I, I, to me it was not very well written. <laughs> so I sent him a note suggesting several stylistic changes the person who was then chief judge came down and he said, you know, Ted, this is uh, these kinds of comments. These are not really comments that we make. These are not the kinds of suggestions that we uh, make to our colleagues. And I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, I'll go back and I'll, I'll try to be more substantive. And then his secretary sent a note to that judge, unbeknownst to, the, to this judge who came to see me. She copied me on the note saying that um, her boss had come down and spoken with me and uh, that I didn't appreciate the collegiality of the court or the, the level at which we give criticisms. Interesting enough, the judge who I sent the comments to made all the corrections I suggested. Um, mm. And I never, to this day, I don't know whether or not if that was a, a white junior judge who had done the same thing, if the response would have been the same, or if it was looking at me as I shouldn't be criticizing, maybe it was just seniority, as my common peace court judge said. Maybe it was just someone who's been there for a few months shouldn't be criticizing somebody who's been on the bench for 20 years. Maybe it was a black, white thing. I have absolutely no way of knowing it. But, but I guess wow. the thing is, and even though you can appreciate that, there's so many slights in life. Yeah. I remember one of my law clerks one time, who was some, some nonsense with the refrigerator that uh, somebody in the court got said that he was using, even though my career white clerk had used that refrigerator for years and never been an issue. When my black clerk used it, all of a sudden there was a it's problem. A issue. Yeah. Uh, but, but you can't, there's just too much out there. If you went through yeah. every day trying to yeah. bump your head against you, that stuff, you, you, you can't just go live, crazy. You, you just, can't live yeah. trying to figure that just out. Let You've go. got to let it go. But I, I just do want to share that, you know, I became diversity officer for the organization I work for. And it gave me license to really push on an agenda that I had personally had been practicing, but now I was able to, you know, exert my influence on others. And one mm -hmm. of my directors had to promote three people out of about a team of 18 individuals. In that team, there were at least eight or nine people of color. And he brought me an entirely white panel. And mm -hmm. so I said to him, I don't, I'm not really interested in just who can do the job today. I'm interested in who has the potential. And so we're going to have a conversation and you're going to explain to me why these people of color don't have the potential. And mm -hmm. he went through each one of them. And for about four of them, 
or five, he said, they're just mediocre. Mm. And I said, mediocre, you know, our levels of, of, of ranking on the performance are does not meet, meets and exceeds. Where did that would, language come from? Yeah, and I would say yeah. mediocre does not meet. I don't want to be working with a mediocre. Who wants to be, you know, on a team sure. with a mediocre group? And I said, well, these are longstanding employees and you've been their director for five years. Why, what, how can you explain to me how you let them stay in a mediocre status? Assuming that you're right, that they're mediocre, all right? But I'm going to take right. your word for it. And he struggled to answer me. Hmm. And that was wow. so enlightening for me because I would have never thought of him as a racist individual. But he has a lot of issues around how he treats people of color. And unfortunately for him, I said, now you've made me really understand the next level of your performance. And that is, you have to prepare a professional mm. development plan for each of those. And if you mm. come to me next year and tell me they're mediocre, something's going to happen. Right. Someone has to move out. Right. So he's <laughs> a little nervous. Wow. But, you know, those are the kinds of subtle things that I was really, I'm now seeing. Ooh. Ted, you muted when you. You mute it real quick. You muted yourself, Ted. Yeah, Ted, you did. There that. we go. No, right. Ted called it sliding, but these are subtle yeah. behaviors that are hard to kind of to see on a regular basis, but they're there. Yeah. You so, know, Keith is so, very, you very interested in the employment arena, and I yeah you reminded me of of, of another situation that was um, a, a built-in. Not it wasn't a subtle thing. And it was at Merck. Uh, a friend of mine is a PhD researcher at Merck, a white woman. We were talking um, in this environment not too long ago. And the CEO of Merck, I'm forgetting his name, just retired. Ken yeah, Frazier. Ken Frazier, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. Um, he changed a lawyer, Ted. He, he, when he got there in his CEO position, he realized that, that Merck had a requirement that all employees had to have a college degree, which, which meant that a number of, of people who would be good employees and qualified to do the work that they had and could advance in the organization could not even get past go. And he changed that. And so let's evaluate people based upon the qualities and the skill sets that they bring and bring them in to do the jobs that they're qualified to do. And then let's train them and see where they go. And it had a remarkable impact on, on the number of people of color that they hired. So there's some things are subtle and some things are yeah. structural. Yeah. We're having that yeah. same dialogue at the Joint Commission. And it's uh, interesting because we we were told that we missed the opportunity of bringing an extraordinarily talented african-american woman because she didn't have a master's and yeah. you know the work that we do we're going into organizations speaking to masters prepared people and they just want any excuse to discredit you 
So it, the debate was, you know, are we putting somebody at a disadvantage by not having that credential, even though they're super talented? Would, will the organization give them the opportunity to demonstrate their competency or will they just write them off? So it's very interesting that you said that. Yeah, Ronnie, Ken is a friend. I've, I told Ken my high school guidance counselor story. He had almost the exact exactly. same experience yeah. in high school. And he got a CEO of a Fortune 500 company. His high school guidance yeah. counselor discouraged him from going to college. One of my colleagues uh, told me that he was discouraged from going to an Ivy League school. Uh, his counselor wanted him to go to a state school. Didn't think he could succeed in Ivy League school. Not only did he go to an Ivy League school and graduate from law school, he's now on the board of an Ivy League school, law school, and he teaches <laughs> courses at Columbia University Law School. So, yeah, but he was discouraged by his guidance. I, I, I wanted to circle back, Anna, to to your um, piece about the term mediocre, because I think words have power, mm -hmm. right? And it's very important, and I'm, I so appreciate you sharing how you how you manage that. And I hope for the listeners here. Uh, on this, you know, listening to this episode today is that words have power, labels have power. And one thing about labels, they have two distinct properties. They carry a message and they stick. And I like the fact that you did not gravitate to what happens so much in society that we gravitate to the narrative that is created by somebody else about either an individual or a group of people. And it really kind of disenfranchises them and put them at a disadvantage for moving up. And like you, like you were saying, did you, as a leader, did you tap into the potential of those individuals or did you automatically assume that they couldn't perform because they were people of color? Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm, I'm a believer, a firm believer that what I see sometimes particularly I do a lot of work with young youth. I started out my career in social work, working with young people. My degree is uh, in family and um, child and family services. I have an MSW from Temple. And one, I did a lot of work with young people and youth, inner city youth in the urban communities. And one of the things I noticed is it was not that the, we set the bar high for those kids and they missed it because the bar was so high. Society has a tendency to set the bar so low for yeah. kids in, in, in urban cities and they hit it and then they can't compete. Yeah. So Anna, when you were sharing your story about um, your biology class, for example, that they was teaching you how to cook a roast con pollo. You see, you see my, see my wife is rubbing off on me. Yeah, so, hey, so, sounds so, good, sounds good. <laughs> a roast con pollo, but, but where, where that's to me, that's setting the bar low. And then when you go to competitiveness, you can't compete because the system. So when we talk about systemic racism and, and all of those things, we see we talked about it in education. We talked about it in the workplace. Is there any other place where you have personally experienced some form of either structural, societal or systemic racism that you would want to share? You know, um, it's really interesting. I think my high school, my junior high school, experience was the best example of structural racism. Mm. We had a group of kids in that school that the education system, the elementary school system prior to them had totally failed. And 90% of the energy had to be spent on disciplinary kids because they did not know how to sit in a class and did not come into the class with the tools to learn. So if you've got 90% of your time disciplining, then that's 10% of your time to teach. But what happens over time 
is that the quality of those teachers deteriorates and the investment they put on putting an education plan together and staying on top of their specialty uh, area really rapidly deteriorates. My science teacher had to resort to arroz con pollo because he didn't really know the science anymore. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, those are the kinds of things that are self-perpetuating. It's part of the cycle. And then those kids from junior high school go to a high school and that high school has to be basically a kindergarten on steroids to keep, keep, keep the kids as much as they can within the four door walls of that building. Yeah. Uh, because it just gets worse and worse and worse. So I, I, I think the educational system I kept, came from was yeah. really fit the definition of designed to make you fail. Mm. And failures then become the cost to society of loss of talent, loss of the investment into the community, loss yeah. of another generation, because these lost people become parents. That's right. right. And it just keeps that cycle just keeps going and going. So, yeah, yeah. it's a depreciate. It's a depreciation in the human capital in our society, particularly yeah. in African-American communities, education. You know, they yeah. tell when I was growing up, everybody say knowledge is power and you need to get an education. My grandmother used to tell me, you know, when I didn't want to go to school, she's like, you're going to go to school today because by the time you get old, you won't be able to blow your nose with your high school diploma. So you need to get a, you know, a college degree. And, and so we are taught that knowledge is power and it's important to get education. But in the Black communities, the system, the educational system, they're not there for us. And then we have to find ourselves like really, really spinning our wheels to play catch up uh, later on in life, whether it's in college. And, um, and you know, I, I'm proud to be a SUNY, a product of SUNY. Yeah, because my, my definition of SUNY is that it's a state university that turns no into yes, mm-hmm. SUNY. Opportunity. Turns, yeah. Yes, it takes a no. For me, it is, a, and my, my acronym for S-U-N-Y is it's state university that turns a no into yes, because I was told that my story is synonymous to yours, Ted, and not to one up your, your, you know, your mm-hmm. commentary, but the same thing. Go to a two-year school. I went to Martin Van Buren High School in, in Queens Village. I know it. I, know yeah. I grew up in South Jamaica, Queens. But my guidance counselor, same exact story. Go to a two-year school, and then maybe you can get into a four-year college. Mm-hmm. And I met somebody, Cynthia Gonzalez, from the tuition assistance program. John knows this. I, t- I tell this story all the time in my urban poverty training. If it wasn't for that one person to introduce me to the SUNY system, it would have just changed the trajectory. She changed the trajectory of my life. So I really appreciate you all, the two of you sharing your stories because I know there's so many listeners here that can find hope uh, in the, this fact that, that you, you know, you're fighting a good fight. You just got to stay in it. And it's, yeah. and it's clear that you all- the well, you know, My, my job at SUNY Binghamton Recruiting was the contract. I do not know Gonzalez, but she sounds like exactly the person that was my job the contract. There are people like that in New York. There was a, a really dynamic guy in Carson Carr in Ithaca who was doing that in Ithaca. It's a guy in Syracuse working yep. in settlement houses and the community centers who knew the kids. And those yep. were my references. That's how I contacted people. In fact, awesome. I'm thinking about my tongue. Um, Bill T. Jones. I could have Bill T. Jones who went on to all kinds of fame as a dancer. Recruited him to uh, Binghamton from a very, very small town. I think he was in Liberty, New York, somewhere in that area. But there are hardly any black kids in the school. And I remember when I went there, 
as I come into the door of the, uh, I don't know if I told you this story, come into the guidance office, I hear one guidance counselor talking to his colleague saying, yeah, this, kid, this guy is coming from Binghamton. He said he was interested in talking to the black students we have here. I told him we, we have a very small black population, but he said come anyhow. Well, out of that came Bill D. Jones. Um, wow. I don't know that they know him, but, but. He's a very, very prominent artist. He was one of the Kennedy Center Award. Featured on the dancer. cover of, I think, Time Magazine. Yeah. Very prominent African-American dancer. I know we're running out of time, but what Ted did that was unique in terms of get, finding talent was he actually went into the prisons and recruited wow. several people post-incarceration. And one of them, I remember, uh, it was Christmas holiday and my, my mm -hmm. Ted was out and couldn't pick him up at the bus stop. And um, my sister and I went and brought him over to our apartment and made him this, he was Puerto Rican, made him this big arroz con pollo dinner and welcomed him. And the, and the guy just broke down at the table. The kindness, mm. the welcoming, he was just so un, un, unused to it. And he actually had a career at Binghamton. Uh, he became the director of the program mm. that had recruited him. And he- really? loved and yeah. adored yeah. by that community and he passed away several years ago but Cancer. the love the love that was shown for him was really his legacy a yeah, very louis beautiful was, story my view of louis if, if we couldn't save louis then we should all we should give it up <laughs> we can't take this guy and give him an education and save him we're lost as a society i'd like to ask you both a professional question uh, Anna, in the healthcare arena, uh, um, disparities of health and and the impact of uh, the way um, we treat people as patients. Would you speak a little bit to that? And Ted, is there something in the legal system that you think is, um, you know, structurally uh, yeah. keeps us from advancing? Uh, on the issue of race. Oh, you're going to set Ted off. But, but that's okay. You really, you don't know what button you just pushed. You want to give him some time to calm down and you go first? Uh, okay, yeah. okay. Um, you know, I, I am very honest and transparent that I feel that the Joint Commission did not move quick enough to address disparities. And mm. I, I think it's an embarrassment on my part. Um, but we are moving and the disparity conversation is one that is a story in itself. This yeah. data has been out for 50, 60 years. You know how many PhDs have been written on this, books written on it, right. scholars written, and healthcare leaders have just ignored this issue. Yeah. How, what shameful situation we're in. And now that it's being brought to their attention, they, they don't know where to go to, to kind of figure mm. this out. They, you know, some of them are building huge infrastructures, others are hiring people with this kind of mm. skill or whatever, when in fact, they simply have to just look at their data. They know how many diabetic complications they've had, mm. how many readmissions they've had for congestive heart failure, how many advanced colon cancers they've had to diagnose, advanced breast cancer, the list goes on. They just need to look at their data, analyze it by race, gender, ethnicity, et cetera, language. It's gonna tell a story. 
Yeah. The story's been already told. You just have to figure out what it looks like in your community. So we, you know, I, I really, I'm embarrassed for two things, the slowness on the part of my organization. And I'm really embarrassed for the healthcare leadership community. Not embarrassed, I'm angry at them. This is on their watch, you know, they needed to have owned this problem because it's a patient safety and a quality problem. You never have safe care if a black woman is gonna die two times the rate as a white woman in delivering the child. That's not safe, so. Yeah, well, and it's also, it seems to me, it's um, mission related. I mean, if your mission is to take care of people and you're taking care of one class of people one way and another class of people in a not as good way, then you're not fulfilling your mission. I mean, it should start there, I think. And then, and then it's gotta, um, it's gotta be imbued in the people's, in the culture and the way people are trained and the whole deal. I mean, it, and it's just, and you got a bunch of smart people you th yeah. think they yeah. could figure it out. I, I would reality, their mission never was intended for all people. Yeah. That's yeah. that's where we I, got fooled. It I, never I, I'm, I'm glad you I'm glad you said that because you know the opioid addiction uh, opioid epidemic is not nothing new. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. It's now that it's just the narrative has shifted yeah. from people of right. color yeah. being people, addicted yeah, to now white people. Like and now, right. now we're getting all these funding, yeah. we're getting all this federal funds. When it was when it was black folk uh, uh, um, addicted to crack cocaine, they put them in jail. Yeah. Right. Now, but right. when it's when it's when it's, it's, it's different, so I agree. I think this that there's so many layers of this that we have to contend with as, as an organization. And I agree with you, Anna. If leadership is not embracing the value of diversity, equity, and inclusion best practices, then I mean, because none of these none of these diseases, none of these none of these physical ailments, none of these addictive things have any, um, they don't discriminate. <laughs> they, att they attack all people from all different races, all socioeconomic statuses. It's we, it's us who are in the power to make an, an impact change uh, that's charged with making a difference around these issues. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So now that you've had time to compose yourself, Ted, so many levels. Uh, I, I worked on two cases today that um, one I'm concurring called dubitante, meaning doubtful, because the standard of review is so high, making it, it very, very difficult to reverse in this situation. But it's a case of a person who was prosecuted for um, selling drugs that resulted in the death of somebody else. The way the case was investigated, it was a black woman. And we look at the pictures of the exhibit. It was all you could do to keep from growing. Tragedy, uh, poverty, a stricken neighborhood. The cops go in and there are bags of heroin all over the place uh, with different brands on them. Butter, Viking, I uh, can't remember the third one, Bulldog. <laughs> they sampled one bag. Uh, they took one bag for sampling, rather. They left. They just left the other. They took her away. They left the heroin in the apartment. They didn't think anything more of the people who lived there. And this was a room where she was with her boyfriend in her boyfriend's house. They just walked out. They didn't know if anybody else was in there. They just left the drugs in the room. You know, in a white neighborhood, that would never, ever have happened. They would have secured the property to make sure that kids or anybody else couldn't get access to the drugs. Another case I worked on today, I did a dissent in, it's a driving while black case, but I know if I said that, I would piss off one of my colleagues who I didn't call it that. Uh, for two o'clock in the morning in North Philly, a pretty impacted neighborhood, a car 
makes the left hand turn without a truck actually. My left hand turn without using the signals. Please pull them over. They smell alcohol in the driver's breath. They pull the driver out to do a DUI um, field investigation. In the meantime, this is where it gets a little bit funky. They find one of the passengers, passengers in the car has a gun and some drug paraphernalia. He's arrested. It gets complicated because if it's a bad stop, they, it's not his car, so he doesn't have standing to pursue the stop. They can only um, uh, he can only challenge it based upon the length of the detention that was extended by the DUI investigation because some things happened during the course of that to prolong it for one cop to go cover his buddy to check on this guy who was who was arrested. But I wrote a dissent. The panel was going to affirm the conviction. And one of the judges on the panel today called me up and said, Ted, it pains me to tell you this, but I, I, think, I think I'm wrong. I think you're absolutely right. Uh, we've got to reverse this conviction. We've got to send it back. And without this evidence, this guy's going to walk. And I said, well, you know, without the evidence, he should walk. There's no evidence. And he said, well, I just hate to see the guilty go free. And I said, well, look at it this way. Uh, he, he said the guy was clearly caught in the car with a gun, with the drugs. I said, if this had been in this part of the city where I now live, he never would have been pulled over. That truck never would have been pulled over for the failure to signal the turn anyhow. So look at it as in the end, we're effectuating a rough justice. He, mm -hmm. he and then it didn't, didn't go for him. He didn't hear what I was. I could have been talking Portuguese to somebody who only spoke Russian. Mm -hmm. He didn't quite get Those kinds of things happen all the time. The crack, mm -hmm. powder, cocaine, oh. dirty. We've had cases, one case in particular, we couldn't do anything about it because the law is so bad. Where a guy had just come out of rehab, he was um, his girlfriend needed an operation. He was hoping to support his girlfriend and her girlfriend's son. Starts dealing uh, powder cocaine. Undercover agent comes to him to buy the powder. This is before the reduction in disparity. It's still disparate, but then it was the, the sentences were really ramped up for crack cocaine. Undercover yeah. agent comes to him and wants to buy cocaine. He sells him the cocaine. The guy looks at it and goes, "This is powder. I don't do a powder. You gotta gotta cook it up into crack." The guy goes, "Look." I know the penalties are for crack. I'm only doing this to help out my girlfriend and her son. I'm not going to touch crack. This is all I can give you. The guy goes, look, I'm not going to buy it unless you cook it up. If you cook it up, I'll give you a double for it. Guy goes home, cooks it up, brings it back. He's arrested for distribution of crack cocaine. Crack cocaine and powder cocaine, exactly the same thing. You take powder cocaine, you yep. put it in a pot with water and uh, baking soda, basically, and you boil it and you get crack. Pharmacologically, it's exactly the same thing. And police were doing that kind of thing. They were manipulating arrests uh, to get the heightened sentences. For a higher crime. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. And they wouldn't do that in the white neighborhood. They would do a white guy. I've never heard of it happening. But within black neighborhoods, we, I had several cases like that. And the due process argument, you can make it, but it's just not there. The discriminatory yeah. argument, you can make it, but you're not So you it. see these things all the time, all the case time, after yeah. case after case. And it's I wonder brutal. how you can... <laughs> provoking. Excessive force, bad yeah. searches, yeah. Uh, jury selection, and how... Much in, this is getting better now, thanks to a 2016 Supreme Court case that Kennedy wrote while he was still on the Supreme Court called Pena Rodriguez. It's almost impossible, it was almost impossible, to inquire into the subliminal bias of a juror during voir dire, which sounds absurd. Most, very few judges would let you do it. If, you, if a judge let you do it, you could, but it was up to the judge's discretion. Most of them weren't that educated themselves in subliminal bias, and they wouldn't let you do it. Just when I was standing judge in Idaho, a good friend who had this remarkable practice in his courtroom of, of controlling for that kind of thing. He's the only one I know who's ever done it. So John, remember where that button was? <laughs> <laughs> Did he push it? 
Yeah, oh, he. No. <laughs> and he's and he's not done, but no. you know, I just want you. To well, know. I, I, so, so my follow-up question is one that Kiva and I talk about all the time with each other. Um, so you both expressed some frustration in your respective professions. Yeah. How do you stay hopeful, or don't you stay, don't, or aren't you hopeful? I'm very, very pessimistic. I'm very pessimistic. Um, uh, I'm not at all. <coughs> I think the country is taking a very dangerous turn. It's a hard turn. I don't see any course correction in sight of anything. The snowball is building up. Uh, momentum is yeah. downhill. I, I'm not at all. I'm not the least at all. Mm. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not pessimistic the way Ted is because I think the situation in healthcare is a little bit different. And healthcare is an area where one person at the top could make a big difference. A big difference. You know, leadership could make mm. a big difference. And frankly, I think that one of the things that we have to start doing is stop having the nice conversation and start shaming people as mm. to what, you know, demonstrate what you have done to address this problem. Uh, believe it or not, the most historically racist medical institution, the American Medical Association, has taken this issue and has made a confession that mm. they were the, the, the petri dish of racism mm -hmm. by all of the things that they have done. They funded research to prove that the, the black race was inferior to the white. They funded research that did all kinds of experimental gynecologic procedures on women of color. I mean, they have a horrific, they confessed and they've invested in this and they're now going so far ahead that many other uh, institutions are having a hard time keeping up with them. Uh, you know, I don't know what the final <laughs> impact is gonna be, but I think we have an opportunity in healthcare. You know, it doesn't matter whether you want to deal with disparities or not. But the truth is, if you do risk contracting, accountable care, bundle payments, you're losing money by letting yeah. one group of people have worse yeah, right. than another. I yeah. mean, yeah. It, it, this is like yeah. There's an economic. Hello. There's a strong there's economic an, argument. Very strong. Yeah. yeah right. So, so we need to stop having the nice conversation as wouldn't it be nice mm -hmm. if you would and all that. Mm -hmm. to shame on you. And by the way, stupid, you're losing money. Yeah. You know. Yeah. That's yeah. the dialogue that I believe we have to have. And that's what's led to the sentencing wow. from the economics of it, as opposed to the people being, not, not university too, but for the most part, I think it's the fact that we can't keep affording to build more prisons and incarcerating more people. Once you realize right. economic impact, now people are sensitive to the concept yeah. of incarceration all of a sudden. To some extent, yeah. That's to right. some extent. Yeah. So I got, I got, I got about, we were, we're coming down me. to our hour, and, and I have one more question, but I want to give okay. you a chance, Kiva. You go if, if you'd yeah, like. Yeah, mine's, because I, 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 I get this, well, I know I, I want to I see how you all uh, deal with what I call the white perspective uh, of, of success, right? And so what, what, is, a, what is a common question um, white people have asked you? You know, as a, as a, as a successful judge and, and, and a doctor, have what what has have been the question that you have been presented with? Well, I know I used to be able to always compare to the Huxtables, except it was the other way around, where the Huxtables, 
the black guy was the doctor and the woman was the <laughs> I mean, my, my world is so incredibly insulated even before the COVID pandemic. And we're really insulated now. We don't go out at all. All my court appearances are virtual, but I don't speak to anyone other than my colleagues, my law clerks. Uh, that's it. So within that circle, I could get those kinds of questions, but I don't. They either they shut it down or plus I'm so senior on the court, I'm the most senior active judge. And so, especially the, the newer folks coming on who don't know me as well, think there's some intimidation. They basically give me a wide berth, which is fine with me. And there's gotcha. a level of respect too, but yeah. they can't leave me alone. I, I'm, I'm sad to say that white folks aren't asking me the, the questions that they mm. should be asking. Mm. You know, uh, it's, you know, they're very uncomfortable, mm. you know, maneuvering in that area. And uh, so I'm not, I'm not engaged in conversations that are meaningful or helping people advance their understanding. Mm. That's uh, why we're doing these podcasts. Yeah, yeah one of the yeah. reasons. So my final question is, um, for each of you, is uh, in this area of racial and social justice, uh, who would you say is your hero? Mm. Each of you. Is living or deceased? Either way. Deceased, that would be Malcolm... There was a guy back in the uh, antebellum period, Munro Trotter, I have a great deal of respect for, a woman whose name I'm forgetting now, Polly, I think it was her last name was Polly. Um, we see almost no credit, no one's ever heard of her. Ginsburg uh, um, credited her with, credit Polly with helping Ginsburg shape how she was going to about, bring about the litigation strategy to advance uh, uh, gender equality. Wow. Um, an amazing, amazing woman. She was transgender. All the time, that wasn't anything that anybody recognized. Um, I, I think those are the folks that I really look to and, and look up to. They come to immediately to mind. I'm sure there are others that I'm that I'm leaving mm -hmm. out. How about you, Anna? Top of mind. Well, Ted's going to be surprised at my answer. I have two people. Um, my dad, even mm. though he used to have some crazy politics. <laughs> But he, he made the decision to raise us as women of color. Mm -hmm. He was criticized greatly by other Puerto Ricans who denied that they were people of color. Mm -hmm. And I think that was, that was an amazing thing. And the next one is this guy here mm -hmm. who has made the right decisions, whether they're uncomfortable or they come at a price. And he's never wavering. You know, he's, he's, his compass is always in the right direction and um, you know, it, it, it forces you to, to say, hey, you don't have any reason to deviate from that compass direction, you know? Mm -hmm. So I, I think, you know, having that closeness of having someone whom you know, if you bring him a problem or you say something, he's, the compass is at work and it's mm -hmm. gonna always kind of come out in the mm -hmm. right direction. Mm. That's great. Wow. That's that's really good. Good for you, Ted. I know. I was really glad. Did you know she was going to say that? Yeah, well, that's the only politically incorrect thing that you do. That's going to be my goal. To, to, when Mimi's asked that question, to say, oh, John, he's the one. Yeah, that, no, that, I'm not going to no, get that answer. Really because, you know, I'm close I'm really up. Touched. I'm very close up. I see it. I know what I know. Sometimes the push and the pull, it's, you know, sometimes it's agonizing, you know? Yeah. Um, so, you know, when you're close up and you can see that and you can see that it's always coming out 
in the same consistent way, it's it's very yeah. supporting, you know. I, I learned so much from you all this evening, you know, and, and just what you just shared, Anna, about the importance of being your true and authentic self. Because sometimes when you when you are faced with these issues, it's easy, the, the, the easier way not to feel comfortable in dealing with it is just to buckle and accept and not challenge and, you know, go about. And so, you know, even with this platform, we know that some of the conversations that we will have here, some folks may not be comfortable with that. However, the more that we have these conversations, it will kind of be, become a norm to just talk about race. It's okay to talk about these issues because they do have a huge impact on our society. And I just, I just thank you all for uh, coming on to, uh, to the show today and, and, and lending us your, telling us about your stories, your history, um, and just, you, you know, the, 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 the couple, you, you, you had the, what I consider to be a power couple uh, and just learning so much. I want to, I'm, I'm going to share this with my wife and just say, I met, I met our mentors today about in terms of marriage. <laughs> oh, very and, kind. Uh, yeah. yeah. So yeah. very kind. That's awesome. Well, I'm very, 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 very grateful. And uh, uh, after we sign off, uh, stay on for a couple of minutes. I want to mention a couple of personal things. Okay. Okay. Awesome. Once this thanks, COVID thing ends and we can get together, we really need to try to get together. I'd love that. Absolutely. Keep yeah. Yeah. Oh, and Mimi, Mimi, believe it or not, she's got another meeting. She was going to, do you want to say, no, she's got an outreach, church outreach. Yeah. Thing, so. Thank you for taking interest in us. Yeah. 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 No, this is awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much. You want to wrap it up, Kiva? Yep. You got it. Well, well thank you to our, our guests this evening, uh, Ted and Anna McKee. We really appreciate you uh, lending your perspective on this topic of race. Uh, and, and how it impacts our society. And we see, we talked about a couple of things this, uh, during this episode. We talked about education, the impact of structural racism, gender differentials, and, and how, uh, you know, just our, our, our social identities can really play a, a crucial role in how society views us in, in, in social narratives that tend to uh, perpetuate this thing called racism. So I've learned a lot. I always do when we have these open uh, and courageous conversations. I want to thank our co-host, John Kepler. Thank you so much for always being uh, true to uh, and a champion to this work. And, and thank you all for listening and, and joining in for, again, another courageous conversation in the race to social justice. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thanks. Bye.